0: psalm 119 um, this passage came to mind really because of a single verse uh, as brother mike was sharing wednesday night this verse came to mind and i immediately uh, and i know brother mike does that sometimes I'm, I'm preaching and when i'm done he'll have a whole different outline of a different sermon uh, from something that was said and i kind of did that wednesday night when you were sharing mike uh, but the verse uh, that really came to mind that I recalled as he, as Mike was sharing, is verse seven, and I want you to listen to this. We'll go back and look at this whole psalm, but uh, these first eight verses. But listen very carefully to what the psalmist writes here. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When, and that was the word that caught my attention. When I learn your righteous judgment. Uh, That's what came to my mind Wednesday night. And then I've been sort of, I was meditating upon that and and I'll get to that in a moment, but it has part to do with the the psalmist, I think humility on display here as well, but uh, that the idea of gratitude with upright heart, being contingent or being related to my understanding of the word. Uh, So essentially you can say, shut your Bible and you can't pray with upright heart. Uh, you'll pray according to the flesh, you'll pray according to desires, you won't pray according to the truth of God's word. So the word informs uh, the prayers and, and shapes the heart to pray as we ought. Uh, and that, that was the, real <clears throat> the message even on that one verse. But I want to read uh, all eight of these verses. You, you're all aware uh, Psalm 119 is the Hebrew alphabet and there's uh, eight verses given under each one of those. And they're all extolling uh, the word of God. In this particular passage, uh, it's really remarkable, but in, in just eight verses, he refers to the law, the testimonies, the precepts, statutes, commandments, and judgments. Uh, all those in eight verses, all those are synonymous with the word of God. That's essentially what's being exalted here. Uh, obviously in their context, it would be the law of God and all the all the the prophets and all the, what we would call the Old Testament canon. Um, but but we're we're thinking in larger terms in terms of the Word of God, also the New Testament uh, revelation as well. So all these every one of the under each letter of the alphabet, they are extolling the the glories as it were, of the Word of God, and I think the necessities of it too uh, we I was sharing with the young people this morning, I think it was the young people, but uh, when we open our Bibles, uh, we're not reading the latest novel, uh, we're not reading. No, we're not reading uh, our, our favorite author's uh, systematic theology. We are reading the very words of God. Uh, and so there ought to be a reverence and, and almost a trembling as we open the Bible, especially if our intent is to learn of God through reading the word. It is essential, uh, essential to our understanding of God. And so the psalmist spends uh, all these verses extolling the word of God, So if you'll read read along with me, beginning in verse one, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek after him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed. When I look upon all your commandments, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn of your righteous judgments, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly." Uh, I had outlined uh, this, this particular uh, part of the Psalm, verses one through eight, 119, a number of years ago, but into three categories. I don't do this very often, but this is alliterated, but it's the happy, Uh, The happy man, the holy man, and the humble man. Uh, And you see all three of these all relating to the word of God. So I just want to share with you under those headings. In verses 1 and 2, you see the happy. I'm getting that from the word blessed there. Uh, It literally means happy. Uh, that's not all it means. In fact, we minimize happy to make it something, uh, something on a horizontal level and sort of, a, uh, sort of a superficial happiness. It means more than that, but it does mean happy. And so essentially he's saying, happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. Happy are those who observe his testimony, who seek after him all, all their heart. So, so that's my first heading here is the happy man. He lists four things involved with this happy man. Number one is that his way is blameless. He's happy because his way is blameless. And when we think about way, we are thinking in terms of my manner of living, uh, the path that I walk in this life, the way that I live my life. He says, happy is the man whose way, whose path in life, whose manner of living is blameless. Now, that doesn't mean he never sins, but it does have the idea that he walks with integrity. Uh, He believes the word and his manner of living is reflective of the word. Well, if you don't have the word, then you don't have the instruction and your manner of living is going to revert always back to the impulses of the flesh. In fact, I'm convinced that the word of God wages war against the flesh or the fleshliness or the worldliness in us every time we open it. I mean, it, it's a living, it's a living word. It is a two edged sword, the scriptures say. So when we bring the word to bear in our lives, we're, we're doing war as it were against our fleshly impulses. <clears throat> That's why it often gets uncomfortable. Uh, I was sharing with hope and uh, I love, I love reading the Puritans uh, because they, they, they have an insight into the glory and the holiness of God that I think is absent in many ways in our culture for many years, many generations. But, but sometimes you have to read them in doses because they bring the scriptures to bear in such a way as that it'll be crushing. I mean, you'll go away depressed and defeated And so I take them in doses. I'll take that and then I'll come to the Psalms and I'll come to the hope and back to the grace of God. And and the Puritans certainly were exalting of that grace, but they, they wanted us to be very clear. In fact, I think the reason they do that is they want to magnify Christ and magnify grace. So the man is happy whose way is blameless, who walks in his integrity. And as I said, that's the manner in which he lives his life. And that's broadly and specifically, I think, Uh, think about uh, your happiness and how it relates to how you live your life. If you live with integrity, if you know the truth and you bring that truth to bear in your life and it's shaping you and conforming you and you behave and, and walk in your manner of life, according to those truths, you are walking integrity and it tends towards happiness, blessedness. Does that mean the world will accept you? No, there'll be times when they reject you. They'll even hate you. But your, your happiness, the, the contentment of the inward man is rooted in our walking in integrity or walking blameless. Now, one literal translation of that word is walking in completion, walking complete, a whole man devoted and given over to God. So the man is happy who walks in the, in his walk, whose manner, whose way is blameless. And then the second phrase there, who walk in the law of the Lord. Here, I think the walk involves the, the, the manner or the conduct of the man, not so much his manner in the large sense, but his conduct happy is the man whose conduct is consistent with the law of the Lord, the word of God. You think about, you think about how much misery and how much distress we introduce into our own lives because we're not living according to the word of God. In fact, if we're not, we're going against the grain of what we were created for. And if you go all the way back to the garden and, and look all the way forward, we were created for the glory of God. And we were created to worship, to love God, to, to interact with our creator. We, we, are, we are improperly used if we're being used in any other way than that. And so we're naturally going to be most happy when we're most fulfilling the reason that we were created. So when my conduct, the way I conduct myself in this life is consistent with the truth of God's word, then I'm moving closer to fulfilling the purpose for which I was created. And that itself tends towards my happiness. It's amazing to me. I, I think I ran a, I, I copied this off on my phone. I won't take the time to look it up, but it was an ad and it said four Four Secrets to Happiness. And I said, well, I got to know what this is. And so I I clicked on that ad. And you know what the ad was? It was, we're going to sell you a book to tell you what the four are. And then I wrote in my notes under that. I said, so in other words, there are five five things you need for happiness. Four we're going to tell you about. The fifth one is you buying this book. And I thought, that's the world. That is the world in a nutshell. Let me tell you how to make yourself happy. And then you spend all your money because you're so desperately wanting to be happy. And so you buy into everything that's being sold. You read every book, you you engage in every activity that promises to make you happy. And you wind up being miserable anyway, right? Here the psalmist says, "Happy." is the man whose conduct is according to the word of God, who walks in the law. It's really simple. Your happiness is contingent upon our obedience to what God has said, what God has said. What's your design? Why did he make you? Well, Lord, let me live according to the design of this creature. I'll be most happy in that. So this man is involved with the law here and the word of God is a happy man whose conduct is consistent with it. He mentions as well in the next word, uh, and it carries on the blessingness or the happiness, extends out to those who observe, or now this is keep his testimonies, uh, keep the law. Uh, It's interesting to me, I've always, uh, we, we overlook this a lot in the Great Commission, but if you'll remember in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I've always thought that was striking. He could have just sent us out into all the nations, you know, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I told you to teach them, everything I told you. He doesn't say that. He says, teaching them to observe what everything I've commanded you. So the real art of discipling, the real craft, if you will, of discipleship is teaching others how to obey all that he's commanded. It's one thing to teach them all that he's commanded. But you can go on in life knowing everything he's commanded and not obey a single word of it. There's a whole, there's a whole dynamic involved of spirit, uh, Holy Spirit prompting and sound instruction that instructs uh, people how to keep the word of God. Parents, that's what you're doing with your children. Yes, teach them what God has commanded, but teach them also how to obey it. How to obey it. I would even go so far as to say why to obey it. What is the hope of your obedience to that word? What is the blessing? What is the happiness that will accrue to those who are obedient to that word? Set before them life and death and bid them and exhort them, choose life. Choose the truth of God's word. Uh, I, re- I was taught, by the way, I was taught the word of God when I was young. We went to churches and I my mom tried to tell us what the Bible said. And I, I, I had a, a at least a... a A remedial knowledge of the scriptures as a young person, but nobody ever once that I ever recall, even into my adult life, sit down with me and said, "Here's how you obey it." And they never told me that. And so, what did I do? I set out trying to obey it in the strength of my flesh and failed over and over and over and over again to the point to where I concluded that the law of God, the word of God is irrelevant for me because there's no way that I can ever keep that. Therefore I'm condemned. So since I'm already condemned, I might as well just throw in my lot with the condemned in general and live a life of condemnation. Why? Because nobody told me how to obey it. If I ask you that tonight, how do you obey the word of God? The reason nobody told me about that, I think, is because it drives all the way back to a dependency upon God, which you'll see later in this psalm. You are absolutely and utterly dependent upon the grace of God. So fall on your knees, cry out to God, and lean hard unto God for obedience, and rely not upon the flesh or your own understanding. So the happy man is walking in the Lord, but he's also observing. He's learned to observe and to keep his testimonies. The last one here I think is critical as well, but the happy man seeks the Lord with all their heart. He says in verse, uh, verse two, the very last phrase, those who seek him with all their heart. So the blessedness he mentions in verse one extends to all of these. And in verse two, all these in that category, these are this is, the, this is the happiness of this man. And part of his happiness is that he seeks God with all his heart. Uh, I can't even begin to express how that registers when I read that, because you're talking about several different things here. Number one, he's seeking, he's seeking, and that implies its own, its own emphasis. And then it's God that he's seeking. That implies this object is divine and, and, and excluded and holy and apart from us. He's, we can't climb our way up and take a peek. He's, he's, he's alienated in some ways from us in our sinful nature. So I'm seeking and I'm seeking a God who, who is mysterious and otherwise unsearchable and unfathomable in all of his ways. I'm trying to comprehend the incomprehensibility of God. And then the third one is I'm doing it with all my heart. That's the challenging one. That's the challenge one the wholeness of the heart, the entirety of my being dedicated to pursuing and seeking out and searching out and coming to know or desiring to come to know the infinitely unknowable God, the God whose glory is incomprehensible and infinite in its extent. That's what we're about. Happy is the man, he says, who's seeking him. Happy. I'm guessing now, just kind of using some logic here, but I'm guessing that if I'm unhappy, the reason may be that I'm either not seeking or I'm seeking a God not like the God of the Bible or that I'm doing it half-heartedly. And that is contributing to my misery and robbing me of the blessed state of of a wholehearted seeking after God. Uh, I remember uh, as a kid, the chase sometimes was more, more enlivening than the capture. Uh, I think about hunting, there's all the stuff that goes into hunting. I remember I wouldn't do it now because it's just way too much labor, but all the stuff involved in hunting. You know, you, you set your place, you find your place, you track and you 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 try to scout out and see where the hunting, where the deer coming through and all this stuff. You get all your ammunition, you zero everything in, you practice, practice, practice. You go out there and spend countless hours in the freezing cold waiting on that one big giant buck to come out into the, into the clearing and, and the, the whole pursuit is there, but then finally one day it happens and you shoot him and there's this initial excitement. You finally got that great big deer, but then it's like something hits your mind says now what now i got to get a 10 pointer, (laughs) not, you know, we got to escalate it. We have to keep boosting it up for our excitement or for our happiness. And that's the way the pursuits of the world are. They always fall short of what they promise. That's because you were created for this kind of happiness. This is exactly why you and I exist. What is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this is the happy man. So what I'm getting at here is the word, the Psalmist is making the word of God critical to his own happiness critical to his walking blameless, critical to his walking in obedience, critical to his observing and keeping the commandments, critical to seeking him with all his heart. If you exclude the word from this, remember the context of this is the exaltation or the exaltation of the word of God. The psalmist sees the word of God as instrumental to his own happiness. And the question for us is, do we or, or have we relegated our happiness to some other thing? Power's on, heat's working, food's in the cabinet, clothes on my back. We have our happiness often rooted in so many temporal things, not unnecessary, but temporal things, and we fulfill all that. And when those things are taken away or interrupted, we are unhappy. The psalmist sees through that. He understands that my happiness, my blessedness, the condition of my soul is the word of God is instrumental in the hands of God to bring about and to produce in my own heart this happy state. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be happier, wouldn't you? I would like to be a happier person, not, not with fleshly things and worldly things, but happy in the Lord and happy as the word is ministering to my own heart. So he, can, he makes it contingent upon his happiness, Also his holiness in verses three through five, you see the, the holy man and by holy here, I simply mean set apart unto God. The word is instrumental. The word of God is essential for God setting that man apart unto himself. If you're waiting for some divine voice from heaven to tell you what to do in life while closing your Bible, it is an act of futility. Uh, that divine voice has already spoken. <laughs> He's already recorded what he said. To shut this book and then listen for a divine voice is to set yourself up for, for a huge disappointment. Yes, open the book, and often you can feel or experience the Word of God speaking into your heart, just like the the verse that came to me, verse 7 here, as Brother Mike was sharing. I'm sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is in me, and he takes something Mike says in regards to a verse and leapfrogs that in my own heart and my mind and turns my mind towards a verse that I remembered. I didn't know that I even memorized the verse, but it came to mind. And I flipped over in my Bible, found the verse, and that's exactly the the verse that the Lord was pointing out to me as I was sitting under the teaching of the word of God. It is a living, active word. And by it, we are set apart unto God. Notice that he says in that verse, beginning in verse three, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his way. So it sets him apart in that the word of God brings about in the believer's life, a, a, a turning away from sin. Sin becomes less prevalent in the, in the believer's life as a result of God's word being sown into his heart. It's a, it was a lot easier to sin when I didn't know the Bible, right? In fact, you could do all kinds of sinning then. In fact, you could quote a few verses and rebuke those who rebuked you for sinning. You knew enough of the Bible to do that, but I got away with a lot of sins in my own conscience when I didn't know the Bible. But the more you read the Bible, the more those sins stand out and the more you read the Bible and the more the word of God penetrates in our hearts and draws us closer to God. And the more we perceive and, and conceive of his holiness, the more illuminated that black spot of sin, deep buried, deep within becomes, and the more dis discomforting. It is that there is sin present in our lives. What was the old saying? This book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. That's true. That's true. A sinner, the last thing a sinner wants to do is sit down and read a book uh, that exposes his sins. Jesus said himself, we are under condemnation because we love darkness rather than light. We don't go to the light because we don't want our evil deeds exposed to the world or to ourselves. We would rather just go on in our blindness, generally speaking. And without the word, we can do that all the way to our destruction. So the psalmist understands that the word of God is critical to his own, his own righteous living, his own, his own battle against sin in his life. Now we know from other scriptures that we'll never be without sin. John tells us very clearly, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth's not in us. there's not a single person in this room that doesn't have some sin, whether it be pride or whether it be self-exaltation, whether it be dependency upon self or someone else other than God, you can get down into the minutia and every one of us have a spot or a stain of sin in our lives. And we ought to be ever mindful of that and, and confessing that even if you think you don't have any, ask God to show you one and I'll guarantee you, you'll be asking him to stop pretty soon. Because he'll start exposing those things left and right. And you'll say, let me deal with these first. So we all have sin. So the psalmist is not saying here that the word of God will make you immediately perfect. Sinless. Sinless. But he is indicating here that the word of God, the truth of God is instrumental in abolishing sin in your own life. We'll stop practicing sin first, I think is the first effect. But then the word of God penetrates even deeper and we begin to recognize sinful motivations, even for ceasing sin. So, so God goes down deep into it within our hearts with the word and the truth. And he exposes not only sinful activity, but sinful inclinations, sinful impulses, sinful affections, sinful motivations. And that's where it gets down into the basement of the Christian life. And to be honest, if you've been a Christian long, that's where you are. You've, you've pretty much learned how to refine the outward and clean the outside of the cup. And to most folks, you look like a Christian person and no one would question for one minute your profession of faith. But if if the Lord in front of all those people could open up your heart and begin to shine the light into all the darkness still remaining in your heart, you wouldn't be near so confident and neither would I. The word of God is instrumental in abolishing or eradicating those sinful impulses still remaining in the one who would follow after God. In fact, you can't follow him and you can't seek him with all your heart until that spirit is at work through the word. So the word of God is critical. In other words, you can't shut your Bible and ignore the word of God and increase or grow in your holiness or grow in your faithful Christian living. You, you You will learn to disguise your sins perhaps or you will learn to cloak them in some righteous garb. Uh, Pride can be as much an enemy of a religious person as a non-religious person and you can cloak it if we don't have the word of God. It is instrumental in that. So they do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. This is kind of going back to the first, the happiness, but they are able to walk in his ways. They, they, they live or they conduct themselves according to the ways of God. And by the ways, I mean the whole of the activity of God almighty, not just his word, but the way God brings his word to bear in this world. And in our own lives, they walk consistently with that. They don't walk contrary to that. And by this, God sets them apart as holy. They're different. They're different. The word of God is instrumental in setting you apart from those people at work. And you can talk to them and you can have conversations and be cordial and be hospitable and they can even like you. But there's something distinct about the Christian in whom the word of God is taking hold. They know it and you know it and y'all may never have that conversation, but it is evident that you are different than they are somehow. That is what is called holy. That is literally having been set apart by the sanctifying effect of the word of God sinking deep within your heart and the spirit of God dwelling there, bringing application where he will, according to his purposes in your life. That sets you apart. You can't, you can't be set apart, apart from the word of God working in you to make you like Christ, to transform you. So the holy man is set apart unto the Lord and does no unrighteousness. He walks in his ways. He says here as well, They these holy men, these men for whom the word of God is taking hold, they keep his precepts. He's going back to that observance there. So precepts and testimonies, statutes, all these are synonymous. But the emphasis here is that the word of God sets you apart as one who keeps the word of God. Not just one who knows it. Uh, you ever met someone who could... Who could who could tell you all the verses. They could tell you what the word of God says, but then when you observe their life, it looks no different from someone who doesn't even know God or isn't committed to God at all. There's a a difference between knowing the word of God and being able to recite the word of God and keeping the word of God. Uh, I think Piper wrote a book some years ago. I forget the exact numbers, but he searched through the New Testament and his point the point he was making was uh, what Jesus, the title of the book was what Jesus demands of the world. And, and I mean, it was uh, amazing. If you go through the gospels and even through the epistles and you start picking out the, the, the imperative statements of Jesus and the apostles on behalf of Jesus, it is filled with demands of Jesus. <laughs> demands. This is how you ought to live. This is how you should live, Christian. And it has to do with this keeping of his word that produces a set apartness about us in our lives. So the word of God is instrumental to our being set apart. Notice what he says about the precepts in that verse as well. They are ordained. I think he means there, these are the inspired words of God. You have ordained your precepts. And then he speaks to those who have been set apart in that they diligently keep them. Diligence. We don't keep them really good on Sunday and then let up on Monday and Start, start drumming ourselves up to keep them good on Sunday because we don't want to go set in church on Wednesday night. I mean, on Wednesday night with a guilty conscience for not having uh, been keeping the word today. So we, we drum up some confidence for Wednesday and then after Wednesday's over, we take a breath and we wane a little bit and then Saturday comes and we think, well, we're going to be going to church Sunday. I better pay some attention now. That's not diligence. That's Intermittent. <laughs> That is intermittent obedience and keeping of the precepts. The diligence means he is always through the word of God. He is always diligently keeping those. He's always observing and striving to be obedient to the demands of God in his word. Be careful, I would say, that you don't become a legalist by your success in doing so. In fact, that's why the last point here is he becomes a humble man. Because it's real easy when you have some success in keeping the word and doing the things and ridding yourself of the things that the scriptures say we ought to be rid of. That we can start resting somewhat in our success. And if we creep from that point into finding acceptance with God based upon that. Well, of course God accepts me. I've done well this week. Well, that's not the basis of your acceptance. In fact, it's not the basis of your obedience either if you're wise. So. It is the word of God that is instrumental in setting apart a man as holy unto the Lord. You can't close your Bible and distinguish yourself in the world, in a world of darkness as one set apart unto God. Because they don't open their Bible either. And let me just say, your impulse to be guided by the flesh is, can be as strong as theirs. And the only difference is they don't claim to be trying to follow anything but that. Whereas Christians, we're hypocritical because we we claim, we make the claim that we are being guided by the spirit and the truth. And often, we're just being guided by fleshly impulses. And so, without the word of God and the instrument of the word of God and his spiritual, his Holy Spirit implementation and surgery that he performs within the hearts of man by that word, you're not going to be set apart. You're not going to be holy. The man... Of God, And the man who embraces the word of God is set apart by that very word. And then finally, in verses 6 through 8, there are about six or seven of these. And you could do a whole series on them, I think. But I think it describes the humble man. He is first and foremost a man of prayer. Notice in verse 6, he says, uh, verse 5, excuse me. He says, And this is an appeal. Oh, that's why I emphasized that when I read that. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. He's not talking to himself. He's, he's understanding in this moment that it is prayer is an essential part of the work of the word in our hearts. Yes, I know your precepts. Yes, I want to desert, desire you. I seek you, and yes, I want to be obedient and walk in your ways and walk in your statues and conduct my life in a manner of consistency, all oh, that my ways might be established so that I can do that. That's a prayer. And to me, that's part of the humility the word of God brings about in us is this recognition that we are dependent upon the Lord. And that is the next one. He is a dependent man. He is, he is depending and petitioning God for the very thing that he desires to do. I want to be faithful to your statutes. Oh, that my ways might be established that I might do that. So he doesn't launch out into some fleshly, self-willed, determined desire to be obedient to the word of God. He may initially start out that way, but he finds out very soon that the, the ability to do it faithfully, inwardly, and outwardly in practice escapes him. And he realizes that it's not in him. So what does he do? He turns through the, through the ministry of the word, he turns to the God whose word it is, and he makes his appeal there. And in the same thing, he's indicating in that moment his utter dependency upon God. He says in the very last verse here, forsake me not utterly. Same thing in a petition here. So the word of God brings about this sort of humility. It brings about a prayerfulness, an an earnest prayerfulness. It brings about a, a greater sense of our dependency upon God to do the very things that he has planted in our hearts to want to do by his word. Let me ask you this. If you want to gauge your maturity, take a look at your humility and does your humility involve this sense of your utter dependence upon God. You can almost track somebody's spiritual growth by, by how much or how sensitive they are to their own dependence upon God. They really are. They really are. And it's the word of God has been instrumental in bringing them to that conclusion and the spirit of God as well. So he's a prayerful man. He is a dependent man. Thirdly, he is a perceptive man. He says keeping, he's discerned here that the keeping of his precepts requires help. That's why he's praying. That's why he uses the the expressive there. Oh, that my ways would be established so that I might keep your precepts. He understands that I'm in need of help here. It's amazing to me, but And and I'm sure this is a fleshly impulse as well, but the more adept we become at something, the less dependent we are upon it. Anyone else for that thing, right? When you go on a job and your first days on the job, you don't really know what the boss man expects. You don't really know the job and they put you through the training and six months, maybe a year, you know that job inside and out and you don't even consult the supervisor anymore and you know your job. You're, you're dependent on no one. I know exactly what I'm doing and I do it well. We, we, we bring that principle over into Christianity sometimes. We, we became a believer and we're eager to be taught and we're, and the Lord is transforming us day by day and, and drastically. And we see it. It's observable. It's a reality. Even our friends are saying, man, you've changed and, and we're excelling. But then as the Lord gives us these successes by his grace, we move rather than f- farther toward his grace. We start moving away from it. And we start thinking well, I got this. I know how Christians are supposed to act. And that's really a tragedy because what happens is whole bodies of believers learn to learn to check the boxes and use the vernacular. And there's a cessation of any inward transformation. And we become nothing more than a room full of hypocrites professing one thing and relying wholly and dependent and, and completely upon ourselves. The one in whom the word of God has worked is a perceptive man. And that he's understanding that to keep this word, to be obedient, requires help from God. Uh, I don't know. I think uh, I'm just opining here. But I think some people feel as though the need for help is to acknowledge somehow some weakness. And acknowledging weakness is a taboo to the psyche and to the world that we live in. Please hear me. It is not. It is not. Paul, Paul had his discussion regarding the thorn, and he thought that I could do this much better if I didn't have this thing dragging me down. And so, Lord, take it away so I can serve and exalt you more powerfully and more, more devotedly. And the Lord wasn't answering the prayer, wasn't taking the thorn away. And finally, the Lord answers his prayer, and you know the story. He says, no. It's given you as a messenger of Satan to buffet you so that you would not exalt yourself. And Paul gets the point. Oh, okay. <laughs> Leave the thorn in praise. I will rather than rejoice in my weakness. So, so the fact that you realize I, I am desperately in need of the help of God to be obedient to God. You have not become weak. You have not become strong in that admission or weak in that admission. You have become strong. And that's what Paul was saying. I will rather than rejoice in my weakness, for in my weakness, the power of Christ is made strong. And that's what Paul wanted in his life. In fact, I think that's what the psalmist is saying here. So the man of God or the man in whom the word of God has taken its root and is working by the spirit's power in his life becomes a perceptive man in that he understands his own need for God's help. He's also an expectant man, or you might say a hopeful man. He says there, I will not be ashamed. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed. My expectation is that God will answer this prayer. He will help. He brings the word of God and he illuminates my rebellious spirit and he confronts it with the word of God. But he provides himself in the spirit to help me in my obedience so that I would not be ashamed when I look at his law. I think he means there when I open the word and I see the righteous demands of a holy God that I don't look at that and feel this great shame. He says, Lord, if you grant this help and I'm able to walk in obedience, I can open the word of God, see your commands and flourish in seeing those truths and and be built up and encouraged by those rather being condemned by all of those. Lord, I need your help for that. I need your help for that. I think we get around that by deceiving ourselves. We open it up, read those commands, and we think ourselves to be more righteous than we actually are. Or we cheapen grace to say that God really doesn't care. That was for the Old Testament people, and he's not as serious. Let me say he is as serious about the moral law as he ever was. He is as serious, and we ought to be thankful for grace in that the righteous demands of that moral law were poured out upon Christ and on our behalf. And that we have standing with God based upon the merits of Christ himself. But the Word of God makes us expectant. What other reason, what other instrument might have provided him this hope that he could someday open the Word of God, see the commands of God, and not in that moment be ashamed? That's a hope that itself is brought about by the Word of God as it comes to bear in their lives. Instrumental. The Word of God makes the man humble. Uh, Also, the humble man is a wise man. He says, uh, this was the verse that really intrigued me and I've really thought about this week, but verse seven, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. And and listen to this, when, when I learn your righteous judgments, that's just uh, the wisdom of that and the experiential wisdom of that statement is just stunning to me. He's understanding that, my capacity for, for righteous gratitude to God itself is dependent upon me understanding His Word. And I need His help. Otherwise, I can't offer true, heartfelt, upright, God-glorifying gratitude. Think about that for a moment. What if God is evaluating your gratitude in relation to its consistency with his truth? What if you offer up your thanksgiving for perhaps even a meal, something as simple as a meal without regard to the word of God and the truth of God? Will he view that gratitude there as insincere or not with upright heart? The psalmist connects his understanding of the truth, the word of God to his capacity to give upright, right-hearted gratitude to God. That is stunning. I mean, that is literally mind blowing that the Psalmist has seen this, but see, here's the thing. This is what the word of God does in a man. That's why it makes him humble. That's why it doesn't exalt him, not if he's hearing it right and not if the spirit is working actively in his heart. Knowledge, yes, does puffeth up, but the spirit of God humbles a man to where he understands now that even my gratitude cannot be offered with uprightness of heart apart from the word of God and the understanding of the word of God. Otherwise, you may be giving God thanks for something that God that God didn't provide for you to give thanks for it may have been rebuke even though there is a way to be even thankful for that but i think we're probably most likely to be guilty of heart heartless gratitude or superficial gratitude or habitual gratitude i have to confess and maybe you're this way but often uh, often praying over a meal is just a is just a ceremony we do before we get to eat uh, I remember, some, I think it was one of the grandchildren, I can't remember which one, it might have been one of the children in the church, but they asked me the question one time, why don't we pray after we eat? And it was humorous at first, but their point was, that would make me feel more thankful. It tasted great. I'm full. I'm not hungry anymore. Now I feel gratitude. Why do we pray before we eat? Well, they they understood something about the uprightness of heart in gratitude. They instinctively understand that heartless gratitude is not gratitude at all. Let me feel something to be thankful for. Then I can express thanksgiving with, with the fullness of my heart. The psalmist understands that. And that's amazing to me. And He's connected the uprightness of our gratitude with our understanding of the Word of God. He says there, when i learn your righteous judgments so the word of god the word of god is instrumental in humbling a man and making him wise it also is instrumental in establishing a resolve in the man notice he says in verse 8 the first phrase i shall i shall keep your statutes You can bet by what he's already said, it's not even entering in his mind any self-sufficiency or self-dependency there at all. He's relying and hopeful and trusting in the help of God for his own obedience. And based upon that reality, it produces in him a humble, not self-exalting, but a humble resolve. I shall keep your word. Now, there's a place for stating that, especially for me in my own heart, saying it boldly. And I'm talking to myself. I'm not not saying it to God as much as I am saying based upon the grace of God and the mercy of God and God's faithfulness to his covenant to bring me home faithfully. With all of that glory involved there, I am resolved that I will be obedient to the word. That's That's not pride. Not when it's understanding and leaning wholly and completely upon the grace of God for the very impulses of that obedience that's humility that's humility but the word of God brings that about in a man it brings about his resolve I will keep the word of God try an experiment sometime just do your best to to spend Monday maybe or one day this week and consciously do everything that God brings to mind as good and right and as his imperative. Just try it for a day. And, and it's amazing because if you do that, at the end of the day, you've been obedient to all that the Lord has brought to mind to be obedient. And there's a freedom and a, and a happiness, <laughs> a, a, real, a real joy in that. But be careful because you'll think the joy is tied to your Efforts to be obedient, and then you rob yourself of that very joy. The psalmist understood that it, the word of God and the instrument of, was the instrument of God to produce this sort of humility in his heart. And I just had it as my last point: the humble man, by the working of the word of God in his heart, becomes becomes a mature man, a mature Christian man. By the way, I'm not being gender exclusive here. When I say man, I mean. Humanity, mankind, so it includes you women as well as the men in the room. He says in that last phrase, Do not forsake me utterly. That's the bottom line. The Word of God has done something in the heart of the psalmist that has driven him so far towards a dependence upon a gracious and merciful God that he understands that everything he desires as a godly man set apart unto the word, everything he yearns for and hopes for is contingent upon a merciful God. And he concludes this section of this psalm and saying, Lord, forsake me not, forsake me not utterly. That's maturity. After all this and all the word in his life and all that the word has done in his life, it hasn't left him in some place where he is confident that I have educated, informed, disciplined enough that I shall stand. Not even then has he concluded that. He ends this section with, oh, Lord, forsake me not utterly. My success and my destiny and my hope, my all rest in a merciful God and so i throw myself upon this god for understanding for light for illumination for for practical application for wisdom for discernment for perspective for all these things i am dependent upon you so in these verse 8 these eight verses and he does this over and over again throughout psalm 119 but in these verse 8 these eight verses is it in, is there any way that any of us could conclude that any of this is going to be possible without the word that you have in front of you. It's just not going to happen. In fact, it's, it's stunning if you think about what, all, what divine providence was necessary to bring the, the writings of the apostles as inspired by God and the prophets down to us all these millennia later to open this book and have the word of God before us. I've always said there's divine inspiration for the scriptures, but there is divine preservation to bring them down to every generation. And you hold it in your hands. Think about that. Think about that. You ever find that it's easier to read somebody's book than to read the Bible? Uh, I think the reason that is is because they're doing the thinking for you. And you don't have to labor for that. You just get to glean from the hours and perhaps months and years and sufferings and hardships and trials that produced that were instrumental in bringing this insight. And I get to read it in a book, shut it up, drink my coffee and go to work. I didn't invest more than 10 minutes in, in reading and gleaning what I could from someone who may have spent a lifetime coming to that conclusion. That's why I think we would. it's easier for us to read a book somebody wrote but when you open this book and set those books aside and begin to delve into this book with the prayerful attitude, Oh God, I am blind and helpless open my eyes that I might see and open my heart that I might be transformed by this divinely breathed truth from you. Lord, let me through this truth, behold your glory. That's, that's labor. That's not going to happen in a five minute devotion. That's day in, day out, meditation upon the truth of God, prayer, brokenness, humility, perhaps providentially suffering and crises and distresses in your life. All these things are working together as the word of God comes to bear in the heart. And then it produces not self-exaltation, but this kind of humility and this kind of happiness and this kind of holiness. That's what Psalm 119 is about. Think about it. It's the longest Psalm in all the Bible, in all the, all the Bible. And it does nothing more than repeats time after time, all the way through the Hebrew alphabet, the exult, exulting in the word of God. The psalmist clearly saw the value of God's revealed word. And my encouragement is that God might grant that we would all. I see that as well so thank you for being here tonight stand with me and we'll be dismissed father we do thank you for your word lord thank you for the experience of the transformative power of your word it's, your word itself speaks of it as a two-edged sword and sharper than any two-edged swords and a living word and lord it is our experience as believers that indeed it is Without the spirit, it's words, it's black ink on a white page, but with the Spirit, Father, it becomes the instrument by which you produce uh, faithfulness in us. And so Lord, I pray that as we learn more of your word, as we study ourselves and in your Bible, in your word, certainly even Father, and for those who can help us and, uh, along the way in other books as well. But Father, as we do all of these, Lord, I pray that we might be mindful that we are utterly dependent upon you for growth and, and maturity and for Christ-likeness. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you by your grace and we plead the mercy of Christ as well for our growth as Christians. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. Watch over them as they go about their ways this week. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be mindful of you and of your word and of your truth often and frequently throughout this week that we might return to this place on on Wednesday evening and Sunday morning and and have our hearts prepared to worship in, in anticipation of meeting you here in a corporate setting together to offer up praises to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his sake and for his glory. Amen.